Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. This afternoon, we're going to be talking about habit, and this talk is called Habits for Life. And there's actually an intentional double meaning in this title, because I mean habits for life in two ways. I mean habits for a lifetime, but I also mean habits for life in the sense of habits for abundant life. So those are the two meanings that I have here. So what I'm hoping is that in the next hour, I'll be able to introduce you to somebody else that maybe you haven't met. And the person that I want to introduce you to is called your automatic self. That's who I want to introduce you to. And to give you a sense of, so meet your automatic self. And to give you a sense of what your automatic self is capable of, I've asked my new friend Kaylee, who is going to give us a brief demonstration from the piano. And uh, so I've got the hymnal here. I've got this hymn, number 433. And could you tell me, have you ever played this hymn before? I'm not sure. A lot of the hymns also she's, sound she's similar. Never, she's never played it before. Okay, so do you want me to hold this open for you? Sure. Okay, so she's going to play, she's never played this hymn before, and she's going to play uh, just one verse of hymn Let's give Kaylee a hand for that. That's pretty impressive. So, so Kaylee, can you tell me a little bit about what's going through? Like, are you looking at every like little note and thinking about, okay, that's an F, and so then I play an F with my forefinger because that's the key. I mean, what's what's kind of going through your mind when you're playing that? Um, you get to know the notes really by name, and so once you have them, you you you'll identify them, and if I see you, the, the people that I know, you, you would know them by name. It's the same with music notes. You would identify it by name, and your fingers would automatically respond a certain way on the piano. Okay, just, we didn't prep, we didn't coach, but did you see the word that she just said? Your fingers automatically. Yeah. Oh, okay, <laughs> so now, um, can you, uh, have you played this, have you played this hymn before? No, that is, Definitely. Okay, so this one's definitely. This is for real. Okay. So, Kaylee. No, no, I want you to play. Keep playing. So, Kaylee, when did you learn to play piano? I was, um, I started playing when I was really young. And uh, when I was four, that's when I started official lessons. And did you always want to go to piano lessons? Um, I actually did when I was young. But as I was getting older, like let's say six, seven, I didn't necessarily want to go. And so what did your parents do when you said, I don't want to go to piano lesson? No, I was a good kid. I, I said, all right, I'll go. <laughs> um, even in my, and then it became pretty serious early on. So I think I never questioned it. Um, but practicing is a different matter. There were a lot of times I didn't want to practice. Okay, thank you, Kaylee. All right, now. S- 
So I, I want you guys to just let that sink in for a moment, what you just witnessed. She's never played that hymn before. Who was I talking to? I was talking to Kaylee. She didn't know what I was going to ask her. I was talking to Kaylee. I don't know if I mean, Kaylee was answering my questions. Please tell me who was playing the piano. <laughs> Kaylee's automatic self can play the piano better than my conscious self can play the piano. <laughs> I took five years of piano lessons, and I could struggle my way maybe through that hymn, but did you see, it, almost, it was almost like she was singing, like the music was like this backdrop. I have been a good kid. I played when my parents asked me to. I mean, it was like incredible. I've never seen anything like that. So that's just to give you an idea of what an automatic self is capable of. But I'm going to give you a few a little bit more down-to-earth examples. So this is maybe more for guys. I, I don't know if women ever do this, but have you ever been on a conference call? I'm on conference calls all the time. And uh, you get to this moment on the conference call where you press the mute button, and you start to kind of like check email, or maybe you're looking at the sports scores, or you're kind of browsing the news, and you know, the fact that you're on a conference call like has completely lost your mind. And then all of a sudden, so I'll be like kind of answering, thinking about this email, and then all of a sudden I'll hear, Art, what do you think? <laughs> now let me ask you a question. Why did I hear my name? Think about that. No word is registering with me at all. I'm doing email. My mind is somewhere else. And then somebody says, hey, Art, somebody just said your name. Time to pay attention. Who did that? Who got my attention? My automatic self. You see that? My automatic self is painting. He's got my back. <laughs> so let me give you another example. So at bedtime... Sometimes I'll go to bed before, my wife's name is Barbara, sometimes I'll go to bed before Barbara, and uh, so I'll fall asleep, super tired, I'll fall asleep, and I'll wake up in the morning, and Barbara's next to me. What happened? I mean, so somehow she managed to get in bed and roll around, do everything, and I, and I had no consciousness that she had come into bed. On the other hand, I can be lying in bed, and I can suddenly wake up and look over, and my 11-year-old is a foot away from the head of the bed, it's a foot away from me. He didn't touch the bed, he didn't say my name, but somebody sensed his presence. So who is it that's saying, oh, that's Barbara, this is normal, she can hop in, don't worry about that, she can get in bed, nothing to worry about. But then, wait a minute, up, Art, with some, guys, we need to wake up Art because something unusual is happening because his 11-year-old's come to, do you know what I'm saying? Like, who's making sentry for me when I'm asleep at night, it's called your automatic self. So let me give you another example. Have you ever had to remember something? Like uh, maybe you forgot somebody's name, maybe you forgot a term, a historical figure's name, or maybe you forgot a word, and you're like, oh, I know I know this word, but I can't remember the word, and you struggle, and you, and you can't bring it up. And so then you're like, well, I guess it's going to come to me at some point. And so then like four hours later, maybe you're having lunch, or you're in a chat with somebody, and then the name pops up in your mind four hours later. Like, what happened in those four hours? It's almost as if, see, this is a picture of my automatic self. So I've got this big library. And so what happens is I'm looking for this name, and it's somewhere in the archives. 
And so my automatic self runs off, and he starts digging through all the shelves and the stacks and everything like that. Meanwhile, I'm going about my day. I've moved on to other conversations. I'm doing other things. But my automatic self is very faithful. And so he comes, as soon as he can get the answer, he rushes it to my desk, and he's like, the name you were looking for, it was Napoleon. That was the name. I'm like, oh, Napoleon, of course. I wish I had known that four hours ago. But do you, have you guys, I mean, am I, am I the only one who's ever experienced that? No. You experience it all the time, right? Okay. So let me give you another example. Have you ever, like, puzzled over a complex problem? Maybe it's a personal problem, a relationship problem, a plan that you're trying to come up with, and you go to sleep at night, and the problem is unresolved. And then the next morning, um, you get in the shower, and when you're in the shower, suddenly the answer pops into your mind. It's the problem. The problem is solved. And people think that there's something special about the shower. It's not the shower, guys. It's not the shower that's solving the problem for you. What's happened is that during the night, you've given your automatic self like 10 hours to noodle over the problem. And, and or it's said five, four hours. If you're a mother, three hours to noodle over the problem. And then your automatic self, you just, the shower is the first time that you're actually paying attention and you're going to listen to what your automatic self has to say. It's the first chance he can get in a word in edgewise. And so he comes and tells you, hey, here's the solution to your problem. This next slide, so I have this slide because this is my wife, Barbara, and I like to have at least one slide that has Barbara in it. So isn't she beautiful? So this is Barbara, and she's in a car. And so this is my, this is my driving slide, okay? But it's my, also my chance to feature Barbara. So have you ever been driving a car, and uh, you start, you're going to, like, go to um, Starbucks, and... On the way to Starbucks, you start date, thinking about that last conversation that you had with somebody, and you're like, you know, I should have said this, maybe I should have said this. And then you're kind of like having this mental exercise in yourself. And next thing you know, you pull up and you're at your office. You're like, wait, I was going to Starbucks. Like, who, why am I here in my office? Have you ever had that happen to you? Or maybe it's not your office, but maybe it's home. Like, you're driving on an air, and next thing you know, you're pulling in your driveway, and it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not supposed to go. I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to go buy like some oatmeal, and now I'm sitting here back at home. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Who's driving the car? I mean, it's who's, let's say it. Who's driving the car? Your automatic self. Your automatic self. And the thing is, the automatic self, it's not just like playing the piano where it's who's steering and who's accelerating and who's braking. This automatic self is like stopping at stop signs, <laughs> deciding whether or not to go through the yellow light. Is it time to turn left or not? I mean, this is like the whole navigation, everything. That's pretty impressive. One of my favorite stories about the automatic self is, uh, you know, I mentioned that the Charlotte Mason's 20th principle refers to the great recognition. And a friend of mine uh, wanted to write this small little book, wanted to have a small little book on the great recognition. Um, and uh, here's a picture of the book. And she said, Art, would you write a chapter for my book? And I said, yes, great. She's like, give me a general idea of what it's going to be about. I said, sure, I, will, I would love to write a chapter for your book. And then I thought, you know, this is going to be a tough chapter to write. And so I'm like, I, it's, I don't even know where to start. It's going to be really tough. And so I said to myself, yes, yes, Nicole, I'm going to write this chapter. And then I just filed it away because I'm just, it's too hard. I don't even want to think about it. And so weeks go by, weeks turn into months. Months go on and on. I'm like, man, that chapter, I'm supposed to turn that in. Like, she gave me like, you know, nine months to write one chapter. Of course, I can do that. But now we're like seven months, we're eight months. Now we're like eight months and two weeks. 
eight months and three weeks. And I'm like, I just, I can't think about this. It's too overwhelming. This is going to be too difficult. I'll just get to it tomorrow. So then right up north, near the end of the deadline, it was a Sunday morning and I went to church and I sat down at church and we sang a few hymns. And then all of a sudden, like the most, one of the most incredible experiences of my life happened to me. The chapter just started unfolding in my mind. I mean, like the whole structure just started coming out. And, and, I, and I was like, oh my goodness. And it was like I, I couldn't even, it was all coming out faster than I could even write it down. And so it was all I could do to come home right after church and sit down at my computer and just type. And I typed out the chapter, and it's 90% the same. It's like I went back and did some editing, but other than that, it's basically what's in the book. So what was happening during those eight months? Something inside of me that I wasn't conscious of it, but something inside of me was, was like knowing that I had this deadline coming and was starting to work through these issues and starting to organize it for me and helping me to get it out. So I believe that that is the automatic self. Now with all of these capabilities of the automatic self, I need to tell you that there are three very important limitations that your automatic self has. You need to be very clear on these. First of all, he has no will. He doesn't make the tough decisions for you, only the easy ones, okay? Only the easy decisions. not going to make any tough decisions. Secondly, he's a follower. He only goes down the familiar trails. He's not a leader. So your automatic self will take you home, take you to work, but your automatic self is not going to take you to Ikea, right? He only goes down the familiar paths, only the comfortable stuff that he knows really well. And the really important limitation is that he's very shy. He won't let you talk to him. And in fact, he may have been hiding from you for your entire life. And today may be the first day that you realize that he's even been there. And so the question becomes, if you can't even talk to him, and he's that shy, maybe they don't even know he's there, how do you train him? Like, Kaylee, I want to be able to do what you just did on the piano. How am I going to train my automatic self to do that if I can't even talk to him? And it turns out that there's only one way to do so, and the way to do that is through repetition. And this is explained in a book published in 2014 by Dr. Richard O'Connor entitled Rewire. And in his book, Richard O'Connor says, put very simply, it seems as if we have a thoughtful, conscious, deliberate self and an automatic self that does most of the work of living without our attention. Daniel Kahneman calls this system one thinking and refers to it as lazy because it's habitual and not creative. Timothy Wilson refers to the adaptive unconscious but I prefer to call it the automatic self. That's what Dr. O'Connor says. He says, I prefer to call it the automatic self. I like that too. That's the word. I use automatic self. I prefer that over system one thinking, adaptive, unconscious, all that kind of stuff. So what he says is that the way to train your automatic self is to repeat the learning until it's integrated into the automatic self. Repetition. Repetition is the way to do it. And this repetition he calls habit habit is the repetition process now it turns out that someone figured this out long before 
Dr. O'Connor published his book in 2014. In fact, in, the, in 18, 1875, a physician by the name of Dr. William Carpenter wrote about it in a book called Principles of Mental Physiology. And I'd like to point out some of the similarities between these two books. 1875, Dr. Carpenter, here's a quote from Dr. Carpenter and see if you can spot any similarities between what he said and what Dr. O'Connor said in 2014. He's talking here about singing, singing. He says, yet we simply conceive the tone or the syllable we wish to utter and say to our automatic self, do this, and the well-trained automaton does it. It's 1875. He's talking about a singer. Well, you ask a singer and say, sing a tone. You simply conceive the tone you want to sing, and it comes out when you're a trained singer. That's how it works. Um, notice another key similarity. He says, any sequence of mental action which has been frequently repeated tends to perpetuate itself so that we find ourselves automatically prompted to think, feel, or do what we have been before accustomed to think, feel, or do under like circumstances. So repetition, so automatic self and repetition, two things that are similar to both of them. Now, one thing that's very important that I want to highlight about the similarity between these two doctors separated by more than a century is that they both say that the automatic self is physical. It's part of your physical brain. So Dr. O'Connor says, when you learn something new, it is a physical manifestation in the circuitry of the brain. And here's how Dr. Carpenter put it. He said, the cerebrum of man grows to the modes of thought in which it is habitually exercised. Now, Dr. Carpenter didn't understand neural networks. He didn't understand computers. But he did believe and understand that something physical was the brain was somehow altering physically in some way when you were learning something. And so they both agree that the automatic self is a physical phenomenon. What I find truly remarkable is this. Dr. O'Connor, he refers to this concept of the brain as being plastic. Have you ever heard of neuroplasticity? So here's what Dr. O'Connor said. He said, there's also big news in science that is cause for optimism. The idea that the plastic or changeable brain, the recognition that our brains change and grow physically in response to life experience. The brain is plastic. He doesn't mean plastic as a material. He means it's changeable. The brain is changeable. That's big news. It's cause for optimism. Dr. O'Connor in 2014 is announcing the news. We're optimistic because the brain is plastic. And if it was big news now, boy, was it big news back in 1875 when Dr. Carpenter said, well, whilst then everyone admits the special strength of those early impressions which are received when the mind is most plastic, most fitted to receive and retain them and to embody them as it were in its own constitution. Wow. Now I want you to understand that Carpenter's idea, his book in 1875 was radical because he was going against the philosophical view of how the mind works. He was saying that thought and mental activity is a physical phenomenon. And this picture is a diagram. This is Rene Descartes' famous illustration of dualism. And he modeled out this idea that thoughts, inputs, are passed from the sensory organs 
through a part of the brain that he actually gave a name for it. Descartes called it the epiphysis. He said that the brain has an epiphysis, which is the junction between the physical brain and the immaterial spirit. And so he modeled out in this diagram that sensory input comes to the brain into the epiphysis, it then goes to the immaterial spirit, and then the immaterial sends it back to the epiphysis, and then it's channeled into the muscles and the other activities of the body. And Carpenter said, no. He said, no. Now, there's a tradition you know, if, if Carpenter and O'Connor both agree that your automatic self is physical, that can sometimes cause Christians to be unsettled because there's a tradition in Western philosophy to think of the body as some kind of a burden that keeps our soul from drawing near to God. And these ideas that the body is a burden have heavily influenced Christian theology and practice over the years. But I don't believe that this physical capability of your body was given to you as an obstacle or trial. But rather, I believe that your body, including your automatic self, is actually a gift that was given to you to help you to draw near to God. And this is what St. Catherine of Siena in the 14th century, she said the following. We have this vessel, our body, and we need this light to direct it since it has been given us as an instrument that is supposed to help our soul to grow in virtue. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your body was given to make you, to test you, to make you stumble? Or do you believe that your body was designed carefully by God to be the perfect instrument to help you grow in virtue? God wants you to be Christ-like. Why wouldn't he give you a body that is aimed and designed to do so? And I think that this concept of the automatic self is actually hinted at even in, in Romans 6 verse 16, when Paul says, Do you not know that if you yield yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? What he's saying, I believe, in Romans 6, is that if you repeat obedience often enough, guess what happens? You become a slave to righteousness because you've trained your automatic self. See, God has given you this provision in your body such that if you repeatedly do actions in obedience to him, it becomes automatic. And so now you can serve God effortlessly. You can serve God as easily as Kaylee can play piano. In fact, you can, have a, you can be serving God and having small talk about piano lessons at the same time. That's what, that's what your automatic self has given you to enable you to do. And I think that that is wonderful. Now, what does this have to do with Charlotte Mason? Well, in a few years after the publication of William Carpenter's book, Charlotte Mason discovered it, and she read it, and it impacted her in a way that cannot be overstated. And so I wanted to understand this link, and so last year I embarked on a project to study this book. It's a 722-page book, and after finishing it, I have to say I understand why it impacted Charlotte Mason so much. I finally finished the 722-page book, and after about a month, I said, you know what? I kind of miss it. I'm going to read it again. So now I'm actually on my second journey, and I'm on about page 500 through the book. It is, that, it is that rich, and I understand why Charlotte Mason was impacted so heavily by it. 
And so as, as I described from last night, Charlotte Mason launched her philosophy of education with a lecture series that began in 1885, 10 years after the publication of Carpenter's book. And here's what she said. In, now, I said it got published. In the, when it got published in 1886, here's what it said on the opening page. In proposing these lectures, the fundraising lectures at St. Mark's Church, my original notion was to popularize and amplify the valuable educational hints contained in some two or three chapters of Dr. Carpenter's Mental Physiology. But the subject is a wide one, and I have found it necessary to cover much ground untouched in that work. She found a code of education in the gospel. She was committed to biblical truth, but she also looked to what general revelation and science was saying about the body. And she wanted to amplify those ideas in her lectures called Home Education, but of course, there's more to it than just habit. And so that was just, that ended up being just a part of her lecture series. She spent a lot of time talking about many other concepts as well. Now, that was 1886. Then, two years later in 1887, here's what she started to say about habit. She made some very bold claims about what the idea of habit means for the practice of education. She said, if parents could just be got to believe in the omnipotence of habit, and in the ease with which a habit is formed, we should live to see a moral revolution, a kingdom of heaven amongst men. That is a bold, bold claim. And then she said that same year, the laws of habit appear to me precisely the only scientific basis we have for education. So yes, we want a biblical basis for education, of course, but we need a scientific basis as well. And for her, the only scientific basis she could see was in this concept, the physiology of habit. Now, for those of you who are new to Charlotte Mason, this may not have a lot of relevance to you, but if you've been in Charlotte Mason circles for, for any amount of time, you may have heard this kind of idea that habits, it's not, not that big of a deal. Habits, just not that, not that important. And uh, there's three kind of variations of that. Some people will say Charlotte Mason recanted her belief in habit. So I showed you a quote from 1887, and some people will say, well, later in life she changed her mind. Some people will say that habit is just another name for virtue. In, in classical education, they talk a lot about virtue, and classical education is synonymous with virtue education, some people will say. And then, uh, and then thirdly, some people will say habit is great, but it's really just a tool to solve certain problems. And so I want to spend just a brief moment touching upon these three ideas that circulate. So the one about uh, this kind of notion, Charlotte Mason recanted her belief in habit. This is kind of similar to, have you ever heard somebody say that Darwin on his deathbed like re recanted his belief in evolution? So this is very similar. So people kind of say that there's this myth that says, well, on Charlotte Mason's deathbed, basically she said, oh, I, I, got, I was wrong about habit. And uh, so that's based on where that kind of myth traces back to. So she died in January of 1923. In 1922, she wrote a letter to a friend of hers, and I'm just going to share with you, uh, so, some, so that back in those days you didn't have email, so you'd send handwritten letters, and then when people wanted to save the letters, often they would type them up and make copies. So this is a typed copy of the recipient of this letter that was received in 1922, and here's the picture of it. I'm just going to read it to you to give you a flavor. This is a personal letter to a friend, just to give you an idea of how personal it is. She's talking about, you know, walks in nature. What a time you had, my friend, what a time you had among the alpine flowers. I know something of the joy of it 
for many years ago, before you were born or thought of, I spent some early spring weeks at the Kaltbad Ridgey with some friends. After 40 years, I still see and smell the luxuriate, but I did not see the soldanella. Science has done nothing to confirm the rut theory in all these years, and brother body seems to me much the inferior partner. I think that all I have written is still true, but I would emphasize habit and so on less. Child mind, no, because a child has as much mind as the rest of us. So I still think everything that I've written is true. That doesn't sound like a recant to me, Everything I wrote is true. That's all I have to go on is what Charlotte Mason wrote about. So she said that everything she wrote about is true. That's what I talk about when I try to share Charlotte Mason's concepts with people. It's what she wrote about. Now, she said she would emphasize habit a bit less. I don't know what she emphasized. All I have to go on is what she wrote, and that's what I'm sharing with you today. So I don't think that's the same thing as recanting. Furthermore, um, after Charlotte Mason, you know, I told you yesterday that she founded the Parents National Education Union, the PNEU. That organization continued for many years after her death, and uh, the PNEU, even as late as uh, 1967, the PNEU was still, it was getting smaller and smaller, but it was still going. And in 1967, in the PNEU Journal, here's an example of uh, just one excerpt from an article. One great thing about the formation of habits is that, it is, it is that to some extent it does away with the effort of decision. Our children should be able to rest on a set of good habits and a settled routine and an authority which they can obey. Charlotte Mason says that one of the mind's greatest efforts is that of decision, and our children will have plenty to decide about as they get on in life. Let us see that they have an ordered and happy childhood. So I guess what I would say is that if Charlotte Mason recanted her belief in habit, somebody forgot to tell the PNEU because here they are in 1967 and they're still talking about habit. Now, I don't agree with like everything that, that, that the later PNEU writers talked about in their journals and so on, but at the same time, I don't think it's fair to discount people who are trying to perpetuate and maintain that tradition. And let's just remember that Susan Schaefer Macaulay, who brought Charlotte Mason back to the limelight, the daughter of Frances Schaefer, as I said, she's the one who kind of reintroduced America to Charlotte Mason was through sending her daughter to a PNEU school, the remnant of the PNEU school. So I respect that tradition, and uh, I think habit is still important. So then some people say habit is just another name for virtue, and uh, I want to, to emphasize this. Charlotte Mason, at one point, she says that if it be not goodness, the will is virtue in the etymological sense of the word, that is, it is manliness. So will is, an, is our choice, and I'll talk about will a bit later. But will is, remember we said the automatic self cannot will. That's one thing the automatic self can't do. When you will, that's when you're making a choice. That's where virtue comes into play. You're willing. And so in the etymological or the classical sense, will is what's involved in virtue. And then uh, by contrast, mothers lose sight of the fact that a habit, even a good habit, becomes a real pleasure. His mother imagines that the effort is as great to him as at first, that it is virtue in him to go on making this effort. But see, that's what happens when, when a good behavior becomes a habit. It's no longer, you're no longer displaying virtue by doing it. You're just being yourself. You're just doing, you're just on autopilot. So habit is not the same thing as virtue. She says that the failing or the virtue which has become habitual to us is flesh of our flesh. It must be treated on that basis, whether it is to be uprooted or to be fostered. This kind of habitual obedience is a question of nerves and muscles, a habit of the brain tissue, 
of which the moral consciousness has nothing to do. And as far as this goes, I think this is consistent with neuroplasticity, and this is consistent with what Dr. O'Connor, what modern science is saying about the brain. The brain tissue, the neuroplasticity, your, your brain is just doing what it's been trained to do, just carrying that out. So I would say that automatic actions are not virtuous, with all due respect to Kaylee and her beautiful piano playing. There was virtue in her parents getting her started and her choice to continue practicing, but now she's enjoying the fruit of all of that labor. So then we have this notion, maybe, okay, habit is important, but it's really just a tool to solve certain problems. What do I mean by that? I think the top three things that people maybe hope that habit is going to do for them is to help their kids get their chores done, to stop whining, and to encourage obedience. And so I mentioned that you know, the three legal instruments, education is an atmosphere, a discipline, and a life. I talked about that last night. So I think that we can kind of look at this hierarchy where we say, okay, the, the, the big idea of Charlotte Mason education is education is a life. Living books, nature studies, stuff like that, maybe of still important but of lesser importance, is atmosphere where we have masterly activity and the importance of a good home environment. And then kind of a distant third is, is education is a discipline with the main aim being getting order in the home. Now, don't get me wrong, I, chores are important, whining is a problem, obedience is important, and order in the home is important. And, and I think habits are the best way to address all of these three areas of concern. But at the same time, you know, that, that notion cannot account for a claim like this. Again, it is parents alone who can give the incessant care necessary for a systematic training in the habits of health, of the alert intelligence, of the good life, and of spiritual activity. Those are the claims Charlotte Mason was making about habit in 1887. I don't see whining chores and obedience here. I see alert intelligence. I see spiritual activity. Wow, prayer, Bible study. I see those things all falling under habit. And so I think that there's a bit of a disconnect in terms of how we understand and think about the implications of habit on education. And I think to some extent, I have been a little bit caught up in that disconnect myself. As I try to understand how habit formation works, Charlotte Mason gives this explanation of how one goes about forming a habit. The habit that she wants to help a parent to form is a boy who will get up in the morning on time and not lay around in bed. That's the habit that you're trying to form. And so you've got a child who the alarm goes off, it's time to get up, and he doesn't get out of bed. He just lies there. And so we have this problem. So do we use bribery, threats, manipulation, all that other stuff that I talked about last night? Are those the techniques? Hey, I'll give you a prize if you get up on time. Do we use those, you know, bribery? Do we, is that what we do? So what Charlotte Mason said is, no, there's a way that we can use habit and inspiring ideas to help get the behavior that we desire. So how would you inspire this boy to get up out of bed? So the way you do it, is she says, you tell, mother, you tell a child that the great duke slept in so narrow a bed that he could not turn over. Because, said he, when you want to turn over, it's time to get up. Now, context, who's the great duke? It is the Duke of Wellington. And the Duke of Wellington is the one who beat Napoleon at Waterloo. And so this boy in 19th century England, there's a reason why he's speaking English and not French. And that's because of the great duke. Now, who is a greater hero to this boy than the Duke of Wellington? Now, the Duke of Wellington, on campaign, on military campaign, he could have slept anywhere he wanted. He could commandeer any house and choose to sleep in it. Um, but what he did is he brought a campaign bed with him. And I've seen his campaign bed. I've seen a picture of it on the internet. And it was about 10 inches wide. And so I see it's like set up in this, in this room because he's staying in someone's house, like in a library. And he's got a bed that's 10 inches wide. 
Why did the great duke, who could have slept in a massive bed anywhere he wanted, why did he sleep in such a narrow bed? Because when you roll over, it's time to get up. That's what it means to be a man. You want to be like your hero? The duke doesn't stay in bed. So now the child is inspired. And so the boy does not wish to get up in the morning, but he does wish to be like the hero of Waterloo. So you stimulate him to act upon this idea day after day for a month or so until the habit is formed and it is just as easy as not to get up in good time. So that's the kind of classic model for habit formation in the Charlotte Mason method, and that's, that's how I understood it to work. And I've even gone and explained it using this particular analogy. So here's a picture of a, of a rocket ship. And uh, so here this rocket is trying to achieve escape velocity. That's why we need rockets. You can't launch an airplane into space. You have to have a rocket because it's so difficult to escape the gravity of Earth. And that's what it's like to form a habit. It's very hard. You need that superpower. And so what I think a lot of people think is they want the habit, and so they think that the fuel, the energy, that big power booster is habit. But it's not. It's the ideas. The big engine, the big power, is I want to be like the Duke. And habit is just that, see that little rocket on the side? That's just a steering mechanism. So with this model of habit formation, the inspiring idea is providing the main force, and habit is about keeping you on track day after day. So in this model, we see that idea, if, we, if I were to illustrate it graphically, an idea inspires a habit. And so we see ideas, education is a life, inspires the practice of habit, education is a discipline. And so I understood that, and I believe that's a valid model. And I believe, and, I, and when I talk to people, how can, you know, what about the piano lesson example? Or doing the dishes. There are ways that you can work with your child on an inspiring idea so that they, they're inspired and want to do the thing that is good for them and that you want to encourage in them. So I think it's very valid. The challenge that I run into is that uh, as I studied Charlotte Mason's writings, I found that some kinds of habit didn't fit in this model. So I, early on, I read where she said to keep a child in this habit of the thought of God, so that to lose it for even a little while is like coming home after an absence and finding his mother out is a very delicate part of a parent's work. Ooh, habit of keeping in your mind the thought of God? How on earth am I supposed to develop that habit in my child? And so it was in 2007, I was in a Charlotte Mason study group, and I wrote this email in April of 2007 with my thoughts on this passage that I had read in school education. I said, for me, the most challenging, even overwhelming of these is to keep my child in the habit of the thought of God so that to lose it for even a little while is like coming home after an absence and finding his mother out. Charlotte says that this is a very delicate part of a parent's work. Delicate indeed. Charlotte says, of the child, it should be said that God is in all his thoughts. Oh, that it could be said of me that God is in my thoughts. I understand that one instills the habit of Christian practice as one instills the habit of closing the door. But instilling the habit of God in all his thoughts? I'm inclined to sneak back to chapter 3 to take refuge in masterly inactivity. This new habit of the soul, I say with Job, therefore have I uttered that which I understand not, things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. I gave up. I didn't get it. How is this going to work? How is this going to work? And so for me, the answer began to unfold as I read Carpenter. 
And I began to understand that every thought is either building or destroying a habit. In other words, every thought is training your automatic self whether you intend it or not. That's the thing about habit. There's no opt-out. You can't say, I don't believe in habit. You can't say, I'm not going to worry about habit. The phenomenon is part of the human condition. You are training your automatic self whether you like to or not. Every behavior, every thought in your child's mind is forming his automatic self. And so this, it's fascinating to understand that Dr. Carpenter began his study of habit because he was reflecting on education. He said, it has been from the depths of my conviction as a physiologist and psychologist of the inseparable relations between corporeal and mental action that the writer has been led during a life of educational occupation to what may be called the scientific study of that relation as manifested within the range of his own observation. So important. I just want you guys to think about this what he wrote in 1875. He's speaking of himself in the third person. This is why this book is hard to read, because he's always talking about himself in the third person. But hear me out and let this sink in. And the writer cannot but believe that there are many upon whom the essentiality of intellectual and moral discipline will be likely to impress itself with greater force when they are enabled thus to trace out its physical action and to see that in the mental as in the bodily organism, the present is the resultant of the past. So that whatever we learn, think, or do in our youth will come again in later life, either as a nemesis or as an angel's visit. Carpenter believed that if parents and educators could just grasp what was happening in these, child's, these children's brains, that they would realize that they can give their child either a nemesis or an angel, which is going to come back and visit your child when he's 20, when he's 30. It was his urgent, urgent call to action. Remember uh, Charlotte Mason, when she defined education as an atmosphere, she said that the child breathes the atmosphere emanating from his parents. Remember I did the illustration with Giovanni about uh, the atmosphere Here's what Dr. Carpenter wrote before Charlotte Mason penned those words. Educational experience proves that nothing exerts so great an influence on the psychical organism as what may be called the moral atmosphere, which is breathed by it from the very earliest stage of conscious existence up to the time of its full maturity. This influence exerted on the one hand through the medium of the body, on the other hand through the unconscious action of example in shaping these habits of feeling which give the tone to character is far more potent than is generally supposed. And commencing in the nursery, it prolongs itself alike in the home and in the school through the whole period of childhood and youth and by no means dies out in old age. Your children are breathing the atmosphere which is the ideas that rule your life and that is forming their habits. Who you are is forming your child's habits. So what Carpenter would say is that atmosphere forms habit. Education as an atmosphere is what forms education as a discipline. You see, this is a different kind of relationship. It's saying that habits form based on the atmosphere that you embed your children into. And so what are the elements of atmosphere that Carpenter thought was so important? He said that the composition of that atmosphere, which science and experience alike recommend, are order and regularity, the principle of duty and obligation, 
notions of right and justice and love towards others showing itself in habitual kindness. Now these are ideas that Charlotte Mason talks about quite a bit. She sees duty as the foundation of morality. She talks about justice and love as two lords of the heart. These are formed by atmosphere. And so if I kind of express this with a kind of a graphically, we might say that education is an atmosphere plus education as a discipline means education is a lifestyle. And I like to call this kind of the rehab model of habit formation, the rehab model. You're just in the environment all the time, and the lifestyle starts to shape and form your habits. So then there's this question of which comes first. Does the idea come first, or does the idea come second? Remember the example of the Duke, the Duke of Wellington. Does the idea come first and then the habit, or does the habit ever precede the idea? And this was Carpenter's answer. He said, the child very early comes to feel what it ought to do. Now, the child is unconsciously impressed long before it distinctly shapes out an idea of the fact by the manifestation of this sense of duty on the part of those around it. So he's saying that children can develop habits before they even understand why they're developing that habit. Imagine somebody, you know, I was talking to somebody today about developing a habit of, of doing the dishes. A child can... If a child grows up in an environment where after mealtime, everyone gets up together and just cleans up, a child never experiences anything other than that without ever understanding notions of kindness, generosity, care, orderliness. The child just, it's second nature. That's what we do. That's what it means to be a middle cough. Middle coughs after the meal, they get up and they clean up. Like, I can't imagine any other way. That's an idea of a habit formed pre-consciously. The child doesn't know it yet. Now, what is the benefit of this kind of pre-conscious habit? This example of the rights for others is one of the earliest lessons where the child has to be taught through his consciousness, but that lesson is far more effectual when the preparation for it has been made and the illustration of it afforded by the habitual example of the elders of the family. So back to the Waterloo example. If you have a family that always gets up on time, how much easier is it going to be for the child to embrace that idea? If your family has a lifestyle of helping others and you want to inspire your child with the idea that it's time to help others, how much easier is it going to be for them to own that idea? If Kaylee grows up in a musical family where everybody's making music all the time and she's surrounded by it and she's seeing siblings who are playing piano all the time and she's hearing it all the time and then she gets the opportunity and somebody says, Kaylee, you know what? You can bring joy into people's lives by playing the piano. Are you excited about that? She'd be like, of course I'm excited about that because that's the world I live in. That's the atmosphere I'm breathing in. So do you see how the atmosphere plows the soil for the ideas that will inspire and propel the child's involvement and participation in these habits? And so Charlotte Mason said, what do parents sow? They sow ideas, but what do you do before you drop ideas into the soil? You prepare, you plow the ground. So you see that habits plow the ground so that the ideas that are dropped in the soil will be received much more receptively. So let me give you some examples of how habits plow the soil so that the soil will be ready to receive the inspiring ideas. Let's talk about music. Music appreciation is supposed to be done 30 minutes per day when it was first started in the Charlotte Mason uh, method. Is that just 
to get the inspiring idea from music? No, it's, it's to form the habit of listening to great music. If that habit is, is established over 10 years, it will change your child's brain. Some people think that if you just play a piece of Mozart to a 12-year-old, that they will just be blown over by the transcendent beauty of the music. But it doesn't work like that. That's how the Avengers movies work like that. But that's not how Mozart works. But you know which has the more enduring value? You're going to get more out of a Mozart symphony than you will out of an Avengers movie. But it takes time to be able to understand and receive that language. And it takes 30 minutes a day. It takes five years. Some parents will get discouraged and say, well, I tried introducing classical music to my children, but they didn't like it. And so I stopped. When did you stop? Well, after two days. Okay. I'll be more sympathetic if you tell me you stopped after 10 years. Because if you listen to classical music for 30 minutes a day for 10 years, the beauty will be unveiled to your child's soul. It's not an Avenger movie, guys. Nature study. John Muir Laws is someone who is a naturalist who is very inspiring, and I wanted to understand where did John Muir Laws get his love for nature? Did he go outside one day like Brother Lawrence and see the tree that was about to burst into bud and then he dedicated his life to nature study? No. If you talk to John Muir Laws and say, how did you get started in your love for nature? He said, well, when I was a kid, the biggest struggle I had as a kid was my dad always said look up and my mom always said look down because my dad was into birds and my mom was into flowers. Habits cloud the soil. We talk about living books. Daphne Chaplin wrote, Miss Mason in the program details books for home reading because she considers that what we read is largely a matter of habit. Habit. Every thought is either forming or breaking a habit. And finally, we have picture study. I started with so much zeal with the Charlotte Mason method. I started to do picture study, and I bought the story. And I said, you know, if I just show some beautiful paintings to my children, that it's going to bring about this great fruit in their lives. And one of the first artists we studied was J.M.W. Turner. And we spent the term, and I did picture studies with my, with my boy. And he looked at these paintings. And then, lo and behold, at the end of the term, we found out that there was a J.M.W. Turner exhibit at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. And my mom lives in Bethesda, Maryland. And so I said to my son, how about if we go to D.C.? and we can go to the museum and we can see these paintings by this artist that we've been studying and we can stay with grandma. And, and he said, that's a great idea, let's go do that. So, you know, we, we made our trip, we went down to DC and we went to the museum and we were there for like 10 minutes. And I'm like, hey, here's one of the paintings you studied. He's like, hey dad, are we done in the museum now? I'm like, what? I mean, it's the whole reason we came here. I'm like, what? No, I, I came here because you said we could stay with grandma. <laughs> So you've got, a, we have to expand the horizon, the time horizon of what it takes. Charlotte Mason said that we shall permit no pseudo art to be in the same house with our children. Why did she say that? Was she being a snob? Was she trying to judge people and be legalistic? Or was she realizing that every thought that you have is either forming or breaking a habit? And that if you're constantly exposed to pseudo art, your brain is normalized to pseudo-art. But if you spend five years doing picture study, you know, my daughter, I did picture study with her from very early ages, and when I went to, had the opportunity to take her to Rome, I'll tell you, it was a completely different experience. As she looked at every single painting, and it was 
absolutely a sheer delight. So let's go back to this question of the habit of the thought of God. Okay? Now, if you are implementing the things that we're talking about in the Charlotte Mason Method, here's what you're doing. You're going to be doing daily family devotions. You're going to be doing, your children are going to be doing private devotions. Each individual family member going off to a separate place to do private daily Bible reading. You're going to be doing Bible lessons four days a week. You're going to be attending church on Sunday. You're going to be observing Sunday as a special day. And when I say Sunday observance, that means that it's not going to be a day that you, do, you just hang around and watch football. Sunday afternoons are going to be a time that you read sacred books together, that you look at sacred art together, that you listen to sacred music together, that you read special poems. Charlotte Mason talked about having even special poems and poets that you only read on Sunday because Sunday is a special day for the family to be together and to rest. And then you're going to be following the principle of Deuteronomy chapter 6, which says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You're going to be practicing that. You're going to be talking about the Lord as part of your everyday life. And you're going to have sacred art in your home. You're not going to have pseudo-art decorating your hallway. You're going to have sacred art that emphasizes the beauty and the transcendent glory of art. And you're going to have sacred music in your home. And you know what's going to happen when a child spends 18 years in this environment? They're going to have the habit of the thought of God. So that when they leave and they go to some new environment, and they go to college and they say, something's wrong. What am I missing? Oh, I know. I'm missing the thought of God. I need to get back into the scriptures. Because I don't like living without the thought of God. Because that's all I know. That's how you develop the habit of the thought of God. That's the missing piece of the puzzle. I believe that the most powerful model of habit formation is rehab and not surgery. It's a lifestyle. So the way I might illustrate it is this way. Ideas inspire habit, but habit invites ideas. Do you see that? The Duke, the story of the Duke inspires a habit, but consistent practice of habit plows the soil so that it's more receptive of the new ideas. Or in other words, education is a discipline and education is a life means together that education is a lifestyle. Charlotte Mason said, it is not advisable to answer children categorically when they want to know why for every command, but wise parents steer a middle course. They are careful to form habits upon which the routine of life runs easily. What is the routine of life if not lifestyle? And so we can put it all together in one big diagram. Atmosphere forms habit. Habit invites ideas. Ideas inspire habits. So these concepts all work together in this beautiful, mutually reinforcing pattern. And so this is how I think we get some meaning out of the words. When Charlotte Mason said, as parents could just be got to believe in the omnipotence of habit and the ease with which a habit is formed, we should live to see a moral revolution, a kingdom of heaven amongst men. Do you see why she said that? This is why she said that. Because habit is that powerful. What automatic self will you give to your child? No mere spurts of occasional punishment, but the incessant watchfulness and endeavor which go to the forming and preserving of the habits of the good life is what we mean by discipline. There are few parents who would not labor diligently if for every month's labor they were able to endow one of their children with a large sum of money. How hard, parents, are you working to save up money for your child? But in a month, a parent may begin to form a habit in his child of such value that money is a bagatelle by comparison. So let's talk for a minute about how habit would answer the question of video games. 
And I am not speaking for Charlotte Mason because there were no video games in her day. This is just my opinion, so that's my caveat. But I hear two common approaches that are proposed for video games. Option one is to allow my child to play video games from time to time so my child can learn how to manage himself. A second option is to completely prohibit video games so that my child never develops a taste for video games. I think there's only one answer when you understand habit. And I think the answer is on the right-hand side. Every thought is forming or breaking a habit. I wish I had believed this some years ago. But there are no do-overs. You know what's the easiest cigarette to say no to? The very first one. The very first one. But I want to mention, I can't leave this talk without pointing out that there is something greater than habit. As powerful as habit is, there's something greater than habit. This is a diagram from Dr. Carpenter's book, kind of his model. talks about uh, the nervous system going from the bottom to the top, and the lowest form of nervous response is reflex actions from the spinal cord. And these are reflex actions where your body will respond to a stimulus without the message having to even go up to your brain. And the next level is uh, sensory. Now you have the part of the brain that's processing senses and doing immediate responses so that you sense something and react. Then moving up higher, you get ideas and emotions. And this is where the higher form of the automatic self is able to deal with ideas, to work on math problems and things for you. But there's something even higher than ideas and emotions, and that rests above it all, and that is called the will. And will is something that resides at a higher level than habit. Will is what you have. It's unique gift that all human beings have, which allows you to transcend the inevitability of the automatic self and the power of habit. To give you an idea of what this concept means, it's a very famous phrase, I am, I ought, I can, I will, are the only firm foundation stones on which we can base our attempt to climb into a higher sphere of existence. The first, which is I am, implies that we have a faculty of introspection which converts a simple state of consciousness into self-consciousness. The second, I ought, that we have submitted that state of consciousness to our moral judgment, which has pronounced its verdict upon it. The third, that we are conscious of a freedom, human beings, uniquely, are conscious of a freedom and a power to act in accordance with that judgment. We are not robots. We have robots, but we are not robots. And fourth, that we determinately exercise that power Hence, we may define volition or will. I am, I ought, I can, I will. That's so important, the concept of I will. Does anybody who's read Charlotte Mason, anyone hazard a guess at where this is in her volumes? Does it ring a bell for anyone? So the answer is that it's actually in Carpenter's book. Page 376. And if we look at home education, page 330, just check it out and see if you can see any similarities between the two. And by the way, on page 330 of Home Education, Charlotte Mason doesn't mention Carpenter. He doesn't credit him. But she credited him in the beginning. She said that she was wanting to bring to light some of his ideas. So something greater than habit, Carpenter emphasized this. He said, with the advance of years and the development of the powers of self-control, the aim should be rather to foster its independence by relaxing external coercion so far as may prove safe then systematically to restrain the healthy spontaneity of the individual within, trammels that tend to become formal and mechanical. The consequence of such prolonged restraint too often being that when the individual is freed from it, he runs altogether wild. 
through not having been trained in the habit of self-discipline. So what I'm trying to bring out here is that as valuable as habit is, there's something more important than the basic habits that we've been talking about, and that is the ability to strengthen the power of the will. And Charlotte Mason believed that will grows by its use. She said, observe the passions, the desires, the appetites are there already, and the will gathers force and vigor only as it is exercised in the repression and direction of these. For though the will appears to be of purely spiritual nature, yet it behaves like any member of the body in this, that it becomes vigorous and capable in proportion that it is duly nourished and fitly employed. The idea here is that your will is a spiritual entity. It's what you get for being created in the image of God, but the will grows stronger by its use. And so you want to give your children the opportunity, your students to give the opportunity to exercise the will because when they make those positive choices, they become stronger. And so the mystery of habit is that the greatest habit for life is to not be controlled by habit, but to know that one can rise above it. I am, I can, I ought, I will. Dr. O'Connor, doesn't really acknowledge the spiritual element of the will. I don't think he's a believer. But even he realizes that the trick in overcoming self-destructive behavior is not so much to strengthen the conscious self so we can control ourselves better, that that helps sometimes, but we must train the automatic self to do things like make wiser decisions unconsciously, ignore distractions, withstand temptations, see ourselves and the world more clearly, and to interrupt our reflexive responses before they get us into trouble. What does it mean to interrupt a reflexive response? than to exercise will. As powerful as habit is, will is the most important thing. Some people have heard this talk and they say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Where does, does the Holy Spirit have any part to play in this? And um, Charlotte Mason noted, she said, the parents' union exists to advance with more or less method and more or less steadfastness, a definite school of educational thought of which the two main principles are, one, the recognition of the physical basis of habit, and two, the inspiring and formative power of ideas, which is the immaterial or spiritual side of education. She has a chapter on habit where she says, this is hardly the place to consider them, but think for a moment of the fitness of the ideas, the spiritual side, the ideas which are summed up in the thought of Christ to be presented to the poor degraded soul. The divine idea once received, the divine life is implanted, also grows, is fostered and cherished by the Holy Ghost. The man is a new creature, with other aims and other thoughts, and a life out of himself. The old things have passed away, and all things have become new. The physical being embodied, so to speak, the new life of the spirit. We're converted by a miracle, but that miracle, just like Christ became man, the miracle of, of conversion becomes part of our flesh. So my call to action Number one, give your children, your students, the best automatic self possible for their adult life. And number two, teach your children to rise above their automatic self through the power and exercise of will. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.